Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart and I'm delighted to be joined today by the Deputy Editor of Heart, uh, Professor Paulus Kirchhoff, who's also a Professor of Cardiology at the Institute of Cardiovascular Sciences, University of Birmingham. Paulus, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. And Paulus, you've been instrumental in the new European Society of Cardiology atrial fibrillation guidelines that were released at the ESC meeting in 2016. I think you were on the writing committee. And you've recently written an excellent in-depth review of those guidelines for heart, which is now available on the website. I just wondered if you were able to summarize in a few sentences over a few minutes some of the changes that we might uh, notice, that readers might notice from the 2010 guidelines. Perhaps give us the top five uh, changes that you've noticed uh, since the last iteration of the guidelines uh, six years ago. Well, thank you, James, for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to um, talk about the new ESC AF guidelines. Let me start by saying that atrial fibrillation is one of the major cardiovascular problems that uh, we still need to tackle. And the uh, European Society of Cardiology, as well as other professional societies and funding bodies, have recognized this. Assuming that the average age of our listeners is 40 years, uh, every fourth of them is, will develop atrial fibrillation in their lifetime. Atrial fibrillation is probably a cause of every fourth or even every third stroke, and even in adequately anticoagulated AF patients, we still see um, major morbidity, including heart failure, sudden death, reduced quality of life, reduced autonomy, and probably reduced cognitive function. So that renders atrial fibrillation um, a big public health problem. I can tell you from the UK that um, between 1% and 2% of the entire NHS expenditure is spent on the management of AF already. Um, and on the other hand, we have uh, new, exciting, very specialized treatments uh, that range from catheter ablation to surgical interventions to other structural interventions to help patients with atrial fibrillation. And in the 2016 ESC AF guidelines, we try to bridge across these specialties. And the main message is that in order to make all of these treatment options adequately available to all AF patients, we need to develop integrated care models for atrial fibrillation, whereby patients, specialist nurses, general practitioners, specialists, specialists with subspecialist expertise, and they can be stroke neurologists, anticoagulant experts, cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, EP cardiologists, surgeons, work together and speak to each other in a structured way to help sort the difficult problems, whilst the patients that uh, can be managed with a standardized approach to care are managed um, using team members that are, less, that are less specialized, that empower patients, but that also have time to ensure continuity of care. Okay, so it's a question of allocating the, the expertise of the team to the patients perhaps with the most difficult to manage atrial fibrillation in, uh, I'm imagining, tertiary centers uh, where these facilities are available, right? Yeah, and it's really uh, going both ways. So it is bringing the expertise that is provided 
for example, in primary care, closer to patients to the community, including screening for atrial fibrillation, and it's bringing those patients who are in need of a specialist care into the tertiary care centers faster, but also bringing them back closer to their own homes quicker so that they are not unnecessarily sort of kept in specialist treatment pathways. Okay. One thing that uh, stuck out from the guidelines um, and also in your review is you, when you're talking about screening for atrial fibrillation is that you say ideally uh, all patients should have an echocardiogram as well as uh, an electrocardiogram. Have you got any comment on that? Is that, is that realistic in, uh, in, in primary care? I think that it is necessary, and the task force felt that it is necessary, and the reason is very simple. There are hardly any patients with atrial fibrillation who don't have other concomitant cardiovascular conditions that need detection and treatment. And the best way to detect those is an echocardiogram. Many patients with heart failure will go undiagnosed without an echocardiogram. Many patients with valvular heart disease will go undiagnosed without an echocardiogram. In addition, the echocardiogram provides important information to make therapy more tailored, including simple things like left ventricular hypertrophy and left atrial signs, but also um, more advanced measurements. The echocardiogram is a simple, non-invasive, um, inexpensive test, and uh, there is not really a good reason to withhold it from AF patients unless information on structural heart disease would not make any difference, for example, in AF patients who are approaching the end of life. Okay. The latest guidelines also bring us up to date with the new generation of oral anticoagulant medications. Have you got any comment on, on which patients are not suitable for the, the so-called NOACs or DOACs? Who should not be getting those? Who should still be getting warfarin? So the... Uh, first thing to say is that we have now more confidence based on large observational analyses that the NOACs are actually safer than vitamin K antagonists in clinical practice in patients who are eligible for them. And therefore, you see guidelines make a clear statement that NOACs should be preferred over warfarin in uh, eligible patients. Eligible patients are defined by the um, approval, but more importantly, by the populations in whom they were tested. And that means that patients with severe chronic kidney disease, um, with a creatinine clearance below 25 to 30 milliliters per minute, are currently not eligible for NOAC therapy. Patients with mechanical heart valves are not eligible for NOAC therapy, and we actually have one trial that demonstrates that warfarin uh, and probably also other vitamin K antagonists work better than NOACs in those patients. And we would still use warfarin in patients with rheumatic heart valve mitral stenosis. This is not a common uh, disease in Europe or and in other parts of the world where penicillin treatment during childhood is available, but it is still a big uh, health problem in, uh, for example, India and uh, China and parts of Africa. Okay, and do you know where we are with um, reversal of of the of the newer agents? I've seen some data coming out that looks very encouraging. Some some new drugs on the market now, but are these widely available? And is, is the situation expected to change over the next few years? 
James, thanks for bringing this up. This is a huge problem. And when you look at the potential benefits of anticoagulation, um, there is still underuse of anticoagulation. And in the guidelines, we try to provide guidance to avoid that. We can safely say that we, are, that we have gotten much better in offering oral anticoagulation to all patients who are eligible for anticoagulation. But when you look at observational data sets, you find that approximately 30% of AF patients stop anticoagulation um, in the first year after it has been initiated. It's probably a bit less for patients on NOARGs than for patients on vitamin K antagonists, but that's a huge problem. And the most common reasons given for that are risk of bleeding or bleeding. Um, and therefore, we have provided very clear guidance on how to manage a bleed um, and also how to reinitiate oral anticoagulation in patients who have had a major bleeding event. Um, the reversal agents for NOACs should be an integral part of that management, um, but they are usually not needed even to manage uh, major bleeding events. Fortunately, the NOACs have a relatively short half-life um, so that stopping the NOAC will restore hemostasis within 12 to 24 hours in patients with normal kidney function. The reversal agents uh, that are available should be part of a local treatment pathway to manage bleeding events, and um, the reversal agent for the Bigatron is relatively widely available as far as I'm aware in Europe and in the U.S. We didn't expect that it will be used let's say, on a weekly basis. And when I listen to what my colleagues tell me and when I see our own practice in our hospital, I note that we have the reversal agent available, um, but I also note that we can manage many major bleeding events without reversal agent thanks to the favorable pharmacokinetic profile of the NOACs. Okay, well, that's reassuring to know. And shall we just finish uh, returning to how we started talking about the concept of the heart team and maybe moving on to more of the um, invasive uh, means of managing atrial fibrillation? It seems yep. to me uh, local practice, certainly where I work uh, in Cambridge, there's more emphasis now on uh, early intervention and ablation and perhaps even surgery in very selected patients. Would you like to, to comment on what kind of patients are eligible for those, uh, for those treatments? I think it's good that we talk about rhythm control therapy. Um, Antiarrhythmic drugs are a very useful tool to restore and maintain sinus rhythm in patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation. We have known for quite a few years that catheter ablation is more effective in maintaining sinus rhythm than antiarrhythmic drugs in patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And recent data supports that this is also the case for persistent atrial fibrillation. So that if you look at the decision flow charts in the AF guidelines, there is no longer a distinction between paroxysmal and persistent atrial fibrillation. And catheter ablation should be considered in patients who are symptomatic and have a need for further rhythm control therapy, especially when they have failed antiarrhythmic drug therapy. To improve the safety of antiarrhythmic drug therapy, we have provided a table listing the ECG signs that can be used to identify those patients who are at risk of proarrhythmia, and also then to get reassurance for those who are not at risk of proarrhythmia. Patients who have 
failed catheter ablation, so who patients who have symptomatic recurrence of atrial fibrillation after an initially successful catheter ablation are and who still need rhythm control therapy are probably the best cohort of patients to be discussed in a uh, rhythm control heart team. And that heart team should consider hybrid therapy, which is a combination of antiarrhythmic drugs and catheter ablation. Um, repeat catheter ablation in experienced centers, but also surgical ablation where available. Uh, the rhythm outcomes after surgical ablation are quite good, but one has to accept that this um, technique is requiring an experienced surgeons and that these are not available readily throughout Europe. And it seems, looking at the way you've worded your review, that you talk about when patients have had uh, rhythm control interventions, you say that when atrial fibrillation recurs, because it seems that it almost always does re does refer. Uh, sorry, it almost always does return at some stage, uh, despite our best efforts. But we may be able to push it out by five or ten years. Well, I mean the the uh, the recurrence rate after catheter ablation is about fifty percent after a few years, and if you add a second or a third ablation procedure, is probably a little bit higher than that. So, uh, I think we have to accept that, unlike other arrhythmias that we can cure with catheter ablation. We don't have a cure for atrial fibrillation uh, in the hand of EP ablationists, but we do have a very powerful tool. And whether 50% is good or bad is probably more um, a question of what type of character you are, whether you are an, an optimist and look at <laughs> the glass being half full or a pessimist and looking at the glass being half empty. Um, there is clearly a, a lot that we can do to improve our approach to rhythm control therapy. And I personally believe that if we find clinical ways to identify the major drivers of atrial fibrillation, which will be different in different patients, and we target our treatments to the causes of atrial fibrillation, we'll probably be seeing higher success rates than we currently see. For the time being, the major changes in the decisions for rhythm control therapy is that the distinction between paroxysmal and persistent AF has been blurred when it comes to the need or the effectiveness of catheter ablation. So catheter ablation is an effective treatment for patients in persistent atrial fibrillation. Okay, well, that's a, a fantastic summary. And thank you very much, uh, Paulus, for joining us on this episode of the Heart Podcast. I should say the paper is open access, so the PDF is available for all to download from the website. And I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you very much indeed. Mm -hmm.